Santa Fe is a city of light. Emerson said that light was the first artist. And we can see the light day and every day, how it paints the landscape, paints the trees. It's almost as if the architecture itself were intentionally subdued so that we could see the light that surrounds us in this high plateau where Santa Fe rests. Artists come here for the light. Photographers come here. Movie makers come here. Even paint companies. I don't know if you know this, but even paint companies bring their paint to test here because there's more light here than almost any place else in this hemisphere. We have a large solar industry. The mountains are actually named after what the light does to them. Turns them this crimson color. The sangres. And there's another phenomenon in this area that I have never seen so much of any place else, and that is the verga. This rain that does not reach the ground, hangs suspended like some splendorous sheet just to catch the light. And the two mountain ranges break up the clouds, and the light plays on the clouds, and plays on the rain, plays on a distant snowstorm. So there could be no better place than Santa Fe to talk of the light of God. Because the sun is our symbol for the light of God. And that we can see in all our archaeological finds. People have looked to the sun. This universal light that shines so equally on everything. It withdraws from nothing. It holds back from nothing. It shines on the garbage heap. It shines on the automobile accident. It shines on the hospital. It shines on all the beautiful people that are now coming to Santa Fe. <laughs> Lots of times we don't want to shine on the beautiful people. It's interesting that this is one of the things that Jesus was criticized about. That he went to the beautiful people's parties. He wasn't supposed to do that. The sun shines on his lovely adobe houses. And it shines on Sirius Road. <laughs> it shines on the palace restaurant in the compound and on Colonel Chicken. And that's our symbol for God. Universal, tender, harmless, all-pervading light. And in all the teachings that have reached this globe, there is another theme, and that is, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And so where is the distinction between the sun and the sunbeam? There is none. There's this perfect blending. Cause and effect. It's all one. Only our words can attempt to divide it. You are the light of the world. You are the light of God. The light is in you, says A Course in Miracles, over and over. It's one of the repeated phrases in the Course. And the light that is in us, Blake reminds us, needs only be released. It does not need to be imposed. We do not need to get more light in us. And this is what we have such a difficult time believing. If we have reached a state of honesty, of deep integrity, 
we see that we do not believe that there is any light in us. We suspect that there is a hideous darkness. We suspect that we are far more selfish than we let on. That we are capable of extreme destruction. Only circumstances have prevented this in our case. Given the right circumstances and this darkness that we suspect is in us would, would show itself. This is one of the fears of praying, of meditating. We really think that if we were to stop and be still, we would go crazy. Because we would have to face the darkness that is in us. And this is a roof. It is not the case. There is no darkness in you. And there is nothing to fear from stillness. But stillness is the open door through which the light can shine. And prayer is merely the releasing of the light that is in you. There is no grasping. It's an opening of the heart. It's a pulling back of a brilliantly lighted house, pulling back of the curtains. And so now the light shines from every window. And the fireplaces burn with light. And the stove has light. And there's light in the children's eyes that play on the floor of the house. And there's light in the smile of the couple that lives in the house. And there's a warm welcome for anyone who comes into the house. This is what we discover in our stillness, in our prayer, in our meditation, in our pausing. As we turn, the sun rises. How many years on this earth was it believed the other way around? We had to wait for the sun to rise. As the earth turns, the sun appears to rise. As we become still, as we practice doing nothing, in little increments, the sun rises in us. My burden is light, said Jesus. Course in Miracles words that my path is light with a capital L. And it's interesting that the word light stands for both weightlessness, an absence of heaviness, as well as illumination. It's interesting that the word light refers universally to a state of mind, to enlightenment. For example, uh, there was an editor at Bannon that I was working with who said to me, uh, I really liked your books, the ones you wrote before you saw the light. <laughs> So there's that use of the word light. And, and also in Santa Fe, we have the light-headed and, and the light-footed, as far as that goes. It's a little less gravity here because of the uh, altitude. <laughs> Recently, Gail and I got stuck in a septic system. Uh, it's important that ministers do this every once in a while. This, is, this was literal. We were driving in our four-wheel drive vehicle, and it fell right in the septic system, right in the laterals. It sunk right in it. And uh, these are things that God prepares for you. Uh, little reminders. Uh, it was a great day for John. He was with us. He assumed the uh, 
what I think of as the politician squat. Um, this you wouldn't know about unless you had grown up in Texas like David and I did. In the small towns, it used to be that if you wanted to be elected, you had to be able to squat in a certain way in the town square. And children do this. They, they, there's no, the heel doesn't rise from the ground. They squat flat-footed. And if you wanted to be elected in Texas, you had to go around the little towns, and you had to have a piece of straw, and you had to assume the, the, uh, the squat that all the old-timers did, you see, and you would squat there in the square, and you wouldn't sit on a bench, you'd just squat there, and you'd, you'd, you'd chew on your piece of straw, and you'd talk about the new dealers, and you'd talk about the wild-eyed Harvard professors, that was all, that was one term, it was all hyphenated. And you'd talk about the uh, bleeding heart liberals, and you'd be elected. That's all you really had to do, provided your squat was right. Now, if the heel was a little off the ground, they knew you weren't sincere. You weren't a good old boy. You hadn't grown up on the farm, and you weren't going to be elected. So John does this perfectly, and as soon as we fell in the septic system, and the rear end of our pickup was was uh, sinking, uh, he uh, he looked the situation over and said that we needed his shovel. <laughs> Fortunately, it was our septic system, so his shovel was not far away, and he got it. And then he suggested various things that we could throw into the laterals so that we might be able to get the vehicle out. Well, uh, it wasn't very long before Gail and I were not practicing the peace of God. Let's <laughs> And the sun was going down, uh, so we, now in the old days, this, we just would have toughed it out, and it would have been just an awful uh, afternoon and evening and so forth, but this time, we did pause. We pipped Awa, <laughs> paused in peace, and uh, this is what we heard in our meditation. Now, when I say this is what we heard, it isn't, you know, we've mentioned this so many times, but I keep wanting to remind this. It's not necessary to hear a voice, but probably most of you have had the experience of something coming to you in such a clear way that it's almost worded. Another time, maybe it is worded, and maybe it's not, maybe it's just a sense, and none of that matters. But this was quite clear, and the answer to our prayer was, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, and you are with the one you love. That was all, all it was. We had not noticed any of that. <laughs> <laughs> and we stopped, and sure enough, the sun was still shining, and there were birds singing, and we all loved each other, and we were with each other. And John was having the best time of his life. As a matter of fact, ever since then, John has asked us, could we please drive back over the <laughs> And uh, refusing that, he then says, well, can't we at least go get the truck stuck? <laughs> so what was that gentle reminder? Well, we've coined a new phrase this morning morning that we can now add to our lexicon, peeing the pee, practicing the present, call that. We're adding now, you realize we've got a number of terms, let's review them right quickly. Because <laughs> we're, we're going to add even another one for, the, for this morning's over. Um, let's see, we have Pip Awa, Pause in Peace and Act Assurance. We have we have putter in peace, and so that means you go about doing all the things you don't think you should be doing, but you do them in peace. And we've got prattle in peace, and we have uh, follow your pee-pee. That's, that's important. Follow, follow your peaceful preference. We have a few more sophisticated terms, such as we have uh, bracketing, which I've told you never to say anybody because it will it might actually become a term uh, which just means you pause before and after each event we have withdrawing which
which is a short way of saying that the peace of God must be more important than diarrhea. We've mentioned that. <laughs> so, it means you withdraw if you're not peaceful. That's what we did. We stopped working on the car and we... So, what else do we have? Oh, out there, I'm sure there's others. But peeing the pee. All right, now, this is very simple. You practice the present. And there is nothing that will allow light to come into your mind more certainly and more easily than practicing the present. But remember, quick and easy are the ego's pornography. does not like those words. And this message, which has now, I think, reached uh, New Zealand and uh, where else in... Uh, someplace else uh, Great Britain and so forth we would have a larger that would just means that someone in those countries ordered a tape that's what that means uh, <laughs> it would have a wider acceptance if I would just talk a little bit about sacrifice and say things like now this isn't easy uh, and uh uh, this is, you know, th if I would talk in that manner. But I would be doing a great disservice to my burden is light. My way is easy. If I were to do that. Enormous effort is required. And this is what's not understood because Course in Miracles, for example, talks about the total concentration that will eventually be required. And that sounds the ego like sacrifice, and it even gets a little excited about that. Oh boy! <laughs> enormous effort, but it's enormous effort to be happy now. It's enormous effort to be relaxed now. Enormous effort to be a child and not try to control the future. Children do so perfectly. Little little children. As soon as you begin practicing the present, which is the key to light, our mind is actually a key. Now, there, there are a number of levels. A Course in Miracles and many of the East, Eastern teaches, uh, teachings point out that concepts are temporary. They must be given up eventually. So there is no such thing as a true concept. A concept is merely a rung on the ladder. So we walk on a path of truth to truth itself. And one of the concepts that's very useful is to look at the way our mind appears to be operating, even though in terms of absolute truth it is not operating in that way. But we seem to be on a bridge between two territories. The territory of the ego, of, the, of a very, very cruel and insensitive world, and the territory of what might be called the real world. The world that forgiveness shows us. And then, of course, there's an even further land that surrounds all that, which is even more ununderstandable. And that is the, the absolute truth. And our mind appears to be like a key. So another analogy is that we're standing before two doors. Our mind is a key and it opens one of two doors at any given instant. It is opening one of two doors. Your mind is a key and you are always using it. And so you're either opening a door to darkness or you're opening a door to light. And this is an inescapable. And it, it sometimes brings a tremendous amount of fear when you realize that it's inescapable. You cannot help using your mind to open one of those two doors. And we think for a long time that we can't escape that. That there is idle thinking in which the key is not doing anything but it's always doing something so there are two steps 
to recognizing the light, and the first one involves a great deal of fear, at least for a short period of time, because we realize that darkness cannot hide. We cannot escape darkness. And we are either choosing light or darkness. And as this begins to dawn on our consciousness, it can be quite scary. We can feel trapped. And people sometimes run headlong back into the world when they first glimpse this, that they are totally responsible for everything that's happening because the ego steps in and says, yes, you're totally guilty for everything that's happening. Of course, that's not it. It's just that what we wish manifests itself. Not in the selection of aspects of the world, but in the tone that surrounds us. So I'd like to look this morning at a few things that our mind does when we begin a spiritual path that throws us back into darkness because we've talked here how the ego adopts a new position when we consciously begin a spiritual path, whether we choose to call it a spiritual path or not. And it does not matter whether someone is a militant atheist, they can have begun a spiritual path in a very beautiful way and have absolutely no truck for words like God and Holy Spirit and Jesus and so forth. And yet, they can be walking quite rapidly toward what in this church we call God. Before I get into that, let me introduce a new term. It's the last one I'll give you today. Effing the D. <laughs> that means focusing now it could, we could say focusing on the darkness and that would be helpful that that's that could be helpful but what actually happens is that people focus on the center of the darkness so effing the d would be it'd be better to say focusing on the dichotomy so you're focusing on the edge of the darkness now last time uh i was gone last sunday and Sunday before, we talked about two little exercises that I suggested. One, of course, was one that I've been suggesting for a long time, which is that you simply look at what you're doing. You look at your house. You look at your food. You look at your clothes. You look at your relationships and so forth. You don't do anything about them, but you look at them more closely than you ever have before and that you see how you feel as you do a particular thing, as you handle a particular object, as you eat a particular food as you put on a particular garment. Not do anything about it, but just notice very consciously how you feel as you go about the day doing these things. And anyone who did that this past week is not living quite the same life that they were living before. There have been some things that have dropped out of your life because suddenly you realized that a particular thing in your life did not make you happy and that you did not have to have it in your life, that you could very easily walk around it. There were other things that you thought assaulted you that you didn't think you could do anything about. But there were things that effortlessly you could let go of. And the second exercise I suggested was that you simply look at the contents of your mind and to look at them a little more closely than you perhaps might have been doing that you designate each thought as that's past or that's the future. Now just seeing whether or not it pertains to the past or pertains to the future requires an honesty that we are not in the habit of exercising. The ego exists in half light. The ego disappears when looked at. This is the quick and easy truth. There is no battle to fight. The long way home is to fight the ego. The quick way home is to look straight at the ego and it will begin to disappear. Darkness cannot hide from the light and there is in fact nothing but light around you. The darkness is an imagined shadow 
when we turn and look at it, it must disappear and you must begin to see that you are the light of the world, this fact that we so deeply disbelieve and distrust. We do not think we are the light of the world. That's nice, we like saying it, but we don't think it pertains to us. We have to have the experience of it and turning and looking at the ego, at the darkness. That's what allows us to do that. Now, even more helpful than peering straight into the darkness is to look at the edges of the darkness. And this is something that is not generally understood. People think they must either run from their ego or they must battle it. And what you must do is define it or you must see its definition. Each of us in this room has an ego and that ego has precise boundaries. And it is extremely helpful for you to see your ego, where it extends and where it does not extend. And so I would like to step up the second suggestion and add the term effing the D. So you're going to focus on the dichotomy. If you wish to take this suggestion, if you wish to try this for this coming week, if you want a spurt of learning, unlike any spurt of learning you've ever had, I would recommend this. If you want to learn, you will learn, learn, learn if you will just begin looking at your ego and telling yourself that's ego. Now, if you tell someone else that's ego, then that's ego. <laughs> you don't know what someone else's ego is, uh, although it, uh, we'll get into that in just a minute. But this is not helpful. This is, there's no light in that. There's no peace in that. That's just an attack. Don't ever say that's ego to somebody. So it's as if we had these little trains pulling out. Gosh, there are a lot of analogies this morning, aren't there? We've got keys and... Oh, all right. It's as if there are these little trains pulling out. Every second in your mind, there's a little train pulling out. It's taking you out of the present. It's very good to identify these trains. So we're now going to talk about the darkness, and then we'll talk about the edges of the darkness. The darkness is merely a little train that you agree to get on and it carries you out of the light. When you begin noticing this, you will be tempted to be very distressed about this. And you will think that it, you're in a hopeless situation because you can see no let up in this. It seems as if every single thought you have carries you out of the present. The distress comes from the thought that you need to do something about this which is also darkness you need do nothing about it because the the light is true the truth is true so there's nothing to do about the truth except look at what's darkness and you won't want it you won't hate it you won't run from it you won't hide from it you just won't want it you just won't you will lose interest in it so you look at your particular trains and once again you might want to say these things out loud now excuse me you might want to say them to yourself you might want to describe them. well I'll, I'll talk about a few of them uh, this may pertain to some of these may pertain to some of you and some of, some of they won't pertain to you but let's just look at a few of the trains that we that we have we generally have most of us have a major train that, that, that's taking us out of the present most of the time. It doesn't matter. One of those trains is not better than another. It's just, just one of the trains. And so, for example, on a spiritual path, we've talked about this before, one of the trains is ego teaching. And so you will, you will relate any thought that comes to your mind. It may be quite a good insight. It may be a truth. It may be any number of things. If you begin looking at the contents of your mind and describing it, just describing it, not touching it, just describing it to yourself, you will start having a flood of insights. And one of the things that may happen, one of the little trains that you may discover is you will immediately, instead of applying that to yourself, you'll immediately think of someone who needs to hear that. 
and you will find yourself rehearsing saying this to someone instead of applying it. This is the ego's way of not seeing it completely. Here comes the insight, and it's almost healed you. It's almost helped you. It's almost blessed you, and now you turn around, and now you're fantasizing a conversation. Or if you're in a more overt kind of teaching, such as writing books or giving talks or uh, healing or uh, counseling or whatever that is, you may apply it to that. You may apply it to, oh, I've got to write this down uh, for my article, for my book, or for my client, or whatever the thing is. This is the ego's way of not taking it into the heart. It's, it's, it's actually a release of light, but it feels like light that's being carried to the heart, and the ego diverts it right at the last minute. Oh, I'm going to teach this, you see. I'm not going to accept it. Now, the reason people do not hear the voice of God in a direct way is that most people's ego would um, misuse that. In other words, they would immediately start trying to apply it to enhance their ego life. And so it would not be helpful for people to hear it in that direct form. So it comes in another form that is more helpful and actually more direct because it's more helpful. And that's why we don't need to worry what form it comes in. Another um, typical way that, that Edgar, the higher ego, uses... Um, a train to divert us is it takes the word peace and it translates it into physical comfort and so for example maybe uh, you run into the house and uh, lock the door and run a hot bath and no one in the house can get into the bathroom because you've got the door locked and you're running the hot water and so forth and you, and you say to yourself well it's more peaceful this is more peaceful for me to do that. If it's at someone else's expense, it is never more peaceful. And so comfort in the sense of trying to control the future and uh, asking, well, when am I going to, i got to have my sleep. And you keep looking at your watch to see when the evening is going to end because you got to get to bed. Or uh, you can't, have an, can't converse with someone until you eat and you're thinking about the food that you're going to eat. Uh, or any number of things that, that pertain to the physical comfort of the body, you may find that this is a particular train that's in your mind, uh, that, that you are constantly protecting yourself and looking out for your own physical comfort in the future. This has nothing to do with your present physical comfort, which can be very helpful, but it has to do with comfort that's not quite there yet. And so instead of actually being comfortable, you're thinking about how can you protect yourself from inconveniences that may occur. And often these have to do with what we think of as creature comforts. Food and sleep and uh, sitting on the softest chair and uh, whatever the thing may be. Another one that can come in a spiritual disguise because there's, as we talked about, this yearning to teach. Ego is our very subtle yearning to be a teacher of God. There's also a yearning to communicate with people. And this seems very innocent. It's a yearning not to lose our friends. And as we track down the spiritual path, we we get more and more frightened that we might be doing this. Now, as we've said so often, you do not have to act weird to be spiritual. You don't have to start talking funny or change your vocabulary. Or, But there's more pretense in your actions. That's what runs people away. And that's ego involvement. It has nothing to do with the light. So the ego asks, how am I, how am I to behave? How am I to talk? How am I to dress? if I'm on a spiritual path, because I've got to let everybody know about this. So there is this yearning to communicate. And, and we, have, we have a feeling that a, f a friend is leaving us if we haven't picked up the phone and called them recently. 
if we haven't uh, gone by and hung out at this person's house, if we haven't gone out with these people in the evening, if we haven't uh, informed so-and-so about an upcoming event, there's a, there's, a, there's a whole nest of rules that we have made about human relationships, things that we have to do to tend our relationships. You may begin noticing this nest in your mind and how much it preoccupies you. Have you offended someone? Did you, shouldn't you do this? Did, oh, you forgot to take wine when you went over to the person's house for dinner. I don't know where this started. But, this, but you know, oh my gosh, and this can disturb us all the next day. What, you know, they don't think I like them anymore. I didn't bring the wine. They're, of course, the major trains uh, of uh, healthy, wealthy, and wise, and uh, rich and famous. These, for some strange reason, have been adopted by the spiritual mo uh, movement wholesale without any scrutiny whatsoever. It's, it's really interesting that here something that's so obviously of the world has been embraced by the spiritual movement. Healthy, wealthy, and wise, rich, and famous. This is supposed to be good. And in the name of truth, people run after super health, super wealth, great wisdom, eminence in the world. And in the name of truth, you will hear people on a spiritual path exchanging stories as to how they got more recognition, more fame, more claim, more money, more something. This is more money than, my friends. It's not enough money to be comfortable and peaceful and happy. It is more money than, more and more and more health. Not healthy enough. So now, now it's all future-oriented. I've got to build my body as if it's some sort of fortress. This is quite different than exercising enough to have a sense of well-being eating the kinds of food that will give us a sense of well-being and peace. Entirely different thing because the orientation is a future orientation. Perhaps as you look at your thoughts and you describe them to yourself, you will notice that particular train, the biggies. Healthy, wealthy, and wise, and rich and famous. Even more subtle. As you begin to identify in your mind ego thoughts, and I promise you, if you haven't done this in any sustained way, it's going to appall you. You did not know you had this much ego nonsense going on in your mind. But you're just going to look at it calmly and not try to change a single thought. If you feel distress, it means you're thinking you have to do something about what you're noticing. The reason you don't have to do anything about it, once again, is the truth is true. It will dissolve just by your looking at it. But you will notice something and you will say, as you define your ego to yourself, you will say, that's ego. And then you will describe it because you're describing your ego to yourself. And you will say, oh, I, I, see, I see, I'm still thinking a lot about uh, how my body looks. This is another train that people, uh, we all have these trains, but some people, they're major trains. It doesn't matter. You don't want any of these trains, and they will all begin to dissolve as you look at them. But let's take, for example, the, the whole business of how the body appears to others. So possibly you'll see you're thinking, you're looking at people's clothes as you go through the day. You'll just notice suddenly that you spend a lot of time looking at how people are dressed. This, of course, has nothing to do with the present, has nothing to do with the light of God. But you're just looking at it. You're just noticing that there's a great deal of this going on in your mind. But you also say, yes, that's true. And there's a there's a boundary of my ego. I see there's that's the little place that juts out there. But I also see I don't go on these. I'm not constantly going in stores, shopping and shopping and shopping. So there's not that that's been let go of. It's very important that you give yourself what you have done. You have gone beyond a great deal. And so this is why it's very good to see the dichotomy between the darkness and the light. Yes, I still think a lot about it, but I'm not acting on it.
as much. Yes, I still get angry a lot uh, at how people behave, you will say to yourself. But I've stopped blooding noses. This, this is a, you know, the old right cross used to just come out like that. Doesn't do that. Or whatever it may be, I, I don't, I don't uh, seem to denounce the person quite as lengthily as I used to. I seem to, I, I seem to be losing interest. I still seem to chastise people and call them on their behavior, but I don't seem to carry on quite as long as I used to. This is the boundary. You see, you're seeing where the thing goes. As you begin to see this, a very subtle way that Edgar, the higher ego, will come in is to tell you, will ask you, what does it mean? And, and so you will want to go from what you've just seen, which is obviously darkness, to what is causing this and what does it mean? What preceded it? And, and Edgar will love to get you all caught up in an analysis of your childhood and everything else, which of course is just more darkness because it has nothing to do with now and has nothing to do with the present. I'm not speaking of going to a uh, therapist who uses this technique. This is a concentrated tool. I'm talking about this particular chatter in which we now begin analyzing, oh, I do so and so, I wonder why. Never ask yourself why. Just see that you're doing it. Why assumes that it has some depth. It has no depth. Let's talk just a second about the body since we mentioned that. Another thing that we have to see, we have to look at the world the way it is. The body grows older, and one of the things that people think on the spiritual path is that somehow they can apply what they think is a law of God, and they're not going to age. I had a friend who told me that he had in fact had accomplished this, and uh, then he grew a mustache, and half of it was. I want to tell you, I talk about people in my life a lot. Uh, now, you may worry about this. Uh, this may be a little train. I want you to know I, I disguise these stories quite a bit. I, I may change the sex. I may. It may have been a beard, for example, and may have been a woman. I don't know what it is. So, his mustache grew out, and half of it was white, and the other half wasn't. And the next time I saw him, he rushed to explain this to me because he had told me at length that he had overcome aging. And he said, this had distressed him momentarily when it grew out that way, but he realized that he was a symbol for yin-yang. <laughs> and then the other side started graying and he shaved it off. Uh, now let's just look at the body. I, this, I don't want to ruin your uh, meal that you're going to have shortly, uh, but uh, let's just look at the body. This is, it's all right to do this. Did you, do you notice that Mother Teresa doesn't look like she's 18? <laughs> Baba Muktananda, as you know, uh, passed on recently. Now, you couldn't have had a more peaceful way of leaving this earth than Baba Muktananda did. He, select, he chooses his, his predecessor. He withdraws from teaching. A vicious rumor has begun. Or, I don't know if it's vicious, but... Anyway, a rumor has begun that he is going around sleeping with uh, all of his women devotees all over the country. And people go to him. The press pick this up and so forth. And uh, he just laughs uproariously about this. He does not even bother to answer it. He thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard in his life. And eventually the person who made up the rumor confessed that it was just that. It was nothing to it, but it wouldn't have made any difference. He wouldn't have. He was no longer interested in defending himself. This was just very funny. And then he leaves and he goes to India where you can leave your body and, uh, and not come back and you don't have to go through autopsies and all this stuff. People know that you can do this and this isn't a big medical concern. So he goes there where he could do this and he just... That's, he just dies very peacefully in that manner. 
Now, he looked his age, or approximately. We all, none of us look our age. This is another thing must be, we must understand this. No one looks their age. You look three years older than your age, or you look eight years younger, and this is the way it will be all your life, you see. So don't, don't start feeling just, don't, you know, don't start prancing around because someone says you look eight years younger. When you are 80, you will look 72. And it, you're not going to get a lot of mileage out of that. So let's look at the body. Once again, I'm not trying to destroy your appetite. This is what happens. The flesh of the body falls off of the bones of the body. That's what it is doing. If you look at anyone who's aging, their their body is falling off their... I mean, it's just the whole thing's falling. Everything's falling. Now, that's just what happens. And you can go out and you can try... You can, you know, you can uh, bolster up little parts of your body through various ways, but there's going to be a general sag and you're not going to be able to do anything about this. Now, there's something that happens to the eyes as the body gets older. It happens to the eyes. You can look in a person's eyes and their eyes get older. Skin gets older, you see. That's why you never want to shake hands with a healer because all the liver spots may be removed from one hand and not the other. Do you see? This is you've got to watch these things. I mean, you don't want you want both the hands to have equal liver spots. The voice changes. We could put someone on a telephone here. Any one of you on a telephone. You could probably guess within a few years how old someone is just by their voice coming over a telephone. So this is what this people. If, if it's more peaceful, if it would preoccupy you less to go have the eye tuck, whatever the thing is, you should have it. But you must understand that your voice is still going to be the same age. <laughs> and so now, of course, there's this dual message that you get from anyone who's had a complete work over because they can't work over everything and their eyes are old and their voice is old and their hair is old and so forth and yet they've got this very young face and so this is slightly confusing uh it's all right though i'm certainly not saying that people shouldn't do this uh but you, we just got to understand that's going to happen now there's a great relief to understanding this and so you don't have to fight this battle it's just going to happen, and it's all right, and it doesn't matter. And look around and see that it doesn't matter. Another train, another Edgar train, it's very subtle, is excitement. Now, excitement is an anticipated something to our advantage, something going our way. And this can can substitute for love and peace. It can seem to. It doesn't actually, if you look closely at it. It's based on fear. It's based on the future. But it's lots of times people think that they have good memories that make them smile. And so maybe there's this relationship that they're not in. It somehow it, it, it broke up. Edgar steps in and says, Ah, but you had good times. Remember the good times. And what happens? You go back, and sure enough, you're smiling over some good time, and immediately the coin turns, and you remember a bad time. You cannot recall anything in the past without it turning on you. And you cannot anticipate anything in the future without it turning on you. So this wonderful thing that you think is going to happen, that you're fondly dwelling on, notice that it turns in your mind, and suddenly you're seeing, oh, but this might happen, and that might happen, and oh, maybe I'll do this, and so forth and so forth. It has turned on you. There's nothing to do about that. Watch it, and you will see that it's a train that's taking you out of the present. The problem with t uh, talking about the present is that we don't know what the present is. And in order to know what the present is, there has to be a little slowing up of the train schedule. And so out of faith, you must believe that there is a present. Because to believe there's a present is to believe there's a God. 
And the ego does not believe that there is a present. A pre the present is useful only as it pertains to the future. And so if you will watch your thinking, and if you will tell yourself what is happening, just simply describe it. Uh, there's my friend uh, Maydell. Uh, I, I grew up in a very fine family, and I don't know how I acquired Maydell as a friend. Um, she spits and chews, <laughs> chews and spits. And uh, I don't know, she won't go away, uh, she's just there. And you're thinking a great deal about Maydell. Uh, and then one day, Maydell bites off more than she can chew. <laughs> and there's no more Maydell. But notice that someone else immediately replaces it. See, Maydell never was the problem. It's a train. There's a train that we value. Our friends reflect on us. That's the train. Knowing that it will be distressful for you to do this, for you to start telling yourself what your ego is, what it contains, and how it operates for you, describing it to yourself and seeing its boundaries, seeing what you do and what you don't do, how you respond to it and how you don't, what you think about, knowing that this is going to distress you if you do this. I also want you to know that this is a temporary stage and it will take you a tremendous distance to do. There will be a clearing out of your mind that you have not yet experienced if you will do this. But knowing that you will be distressed, let me give you a few little imageries to use. When you begin to run across things that suddenly you are appalled, you recognize something about your ego that you had not seen before and you want to get rid of it in the worst way. Maybe there's, for example, some memory that you're going over and over and over again. So let me just give you a few little imageries. Very, very simple ones. The simplest imagery, the one that's universal, the one that always works, and the one you can use to heal with or to do anything with is simply to surround in light. There is no finer imagery in the world than to surround what you are thinking of in light, to surround this sick friend, to surround this embarrassing thing, to surround this fear of the future. To surround this part of your body that's, that you're afraid of. To surround it in light. You just surround it in peace and love. And it will begin to change in the light. You put it in the light. In this new frame. It begins to change of its own. So you don't do anything to the memory. Or to the thought. Or to this behavior that you've just noticed. Or, to, or your desire to discredit your friends. Maybe this will suddenly dawn on you. I want to discredit my friends. Surround yourself in light. Surround your comments in light. Surround your friends in light. This is not what you want in your heart. You're discovering what your ego wants. And that's the first step. A second one. It's very, very simple and very effective. You put it on a blackboard and erase it. Wonderful imagery. Something in the past, something you just did, and your ego's going back now and saying, what does it mean, what does it mean, and what, what caused it, and uh, what can I learn from it, all of which is nonsense. If you've recognized it as ego, that's all you need to do. But you don't want it anymore, and you would like to get rid of it a little bit, although I've just said don't try to get rid of it. Still, it's distressing you so much you want to get rid of it a little bit. So you just picture this thing that you just did, or this fear of the future, and you see it, and you just take your eraser, make it a eraser of pure light. Do it any way you want to, and you just erase the scene completely. Do that every time it comes to your mind. Very simple. So in the last two talks, we have spoken of two steps. One deals with the outer world, deals with dissolving our body in light, dissolving our residence, our apartment, our home in light.
dissolving our job and our friendships, our relationships in life, dissolving our life, our worldly life in light. We surround it in light, we look at it in light, we bring light to it in every way possible. And so as we've spoken so often here, we must build this nest of peace, not protecting future physical comfort, not that kind of nest, but a nest in which our peace, our love, our light can shine. This little ball of light that rests in this nest of light that we've constructed. And so each fiber of the nest is very carefully selected. And that's why we look and we simplify. And we step away from this for a moment and we, we change this particular thing that's going on for a moment. And sure enough, our residence, our car, whatever it is, begins to dissolve in light. It disappears. It is no longer noticed. It's there. We can see it. But it's no longer a concern to us. Our car, our body, our friendships, our job. It has disappeared. We are walking on water. This is what it means. We are assured that the time will come in which we will not want to change the least little thing in this world. That is true forgiveness and harmlessness. Not to want to change anything. Because we have forgiven the world. And we love God. And there is of course this ego desire to pray more not praying enough and we beat ourselves up over this but we don't pray more because it's coming from the ego it's just a torture mechanism but then there's this other I want to pray more it's it's a homesickness it's like being at camp for the first time it's like being away from the one you love it's like not seeing your child for a long time and your child is there and your home is there and your God is there and your Father is there and you have this homesickness and so you pause. Of course you pause. You have a few minutes now. You pause. I want to know my Father. I want to know the love of God. This longing that takes form now. And we will not do that as long as anything in this world is important because we will run after trying to change it. It's a gradual process. So simple. And everything begins to disappear. Oh, it's just a dream. It's just a dream. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Now we're in a position to help people. We're not being crushed by what they're being crushed by. So we are, we're not in the quicksand. We're out of the quicksand. We can pull them out of it. Oh, it's just a dream. It doesn't matter what form the dream takes. I don't want to run after I don't want the effects of the dream anymore. But you must see what effects you do want now. And the second step is the inner world. Bringing our thoughts to light. And making our mind disappear. What we think of as our mind. Disappear. The volume is turned down. Still hear it. But less and less. And there is in fact another mind there. Of pure light. Great, great stillness and joy. This love of God that shines all around us. It's so still. It's so vast. This shimmering smile. It's so still. It's all around us. And we pause and it just comes into our heart a little bit. Because our mind is quiet. Because we have looked at our unstill mind. And we've said. Not interested in that. I don't want to think about the things of the world anymore. I'm losing interest in the things of the world, the concerns, the concerns of the world, the tragedies of the world. We dare to walk away 
from misery. We no longer seek equality by being crushed by what other people are being crushed by, which is not equality. I don't know how to end these things. And you see, people get to the end of something like that. I'm finished, but I, I, I ended on this up thing. See, now the ta- then they send the tape back. Uh, it was part of it was left off. You see, <laughs> but anyway, it's over. And what I would like to do. <laughs>